Hi there, everybody. Welcome to episode 20 of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. I am leaving in just a few hours for Alaska. You're going to get this a few days after that, of course, because i got to get it all uploaded and edited. But I just got off the phone, a Skype interview with the legendary Bruce Goldsmith. I uh, can't believe the folks I'm getting access to. It has been such a treat. Um, and this one was right at the top. We could have done a three or four part series. I think we left this one kind of hanging at the end. I'm sorry about that. Uh, there was just so many good things to go over and it was getting quite late for Bruce. He's out in La Raña, uh doing some training with his son, Tier, who's learning how to fly. We talk a lot about that. We talk about his world championship win in 2007. Uh, Bruce is one of the only people, along with John Pendry and Robbie Whittle, who have won uh, the world championships both in uh, hang gliding and paragliding. Uh, we talk a lot about mentoring. Uh, this guy has just, I mean, he started competing in the mid 80s. He's been at it a long time, civil engineer by trade, but he's been uh, with Ozone and Advance and a lot of other companies. He's, of course, now the head of BGD Designs, uh, Bruce Goldsmith Designs. Uh, we talk about testing and how wing comes to fruition and about safety and about accidents and about strategies for winning and uh, flying with the gaggle. Uh, I can't be more excited to bring this one to you. And I'm sorry for the background noise. Uh, he had his sons in the background playing a little bit, bit of piano at one point and there was some uh, scratching and that kind of thing, but it's still worth it. Stick with it. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Uh, without further ado, Bruce Goldsmith. Bruce Goldsmith, it is awesome to have you on the Mayhem. We've been trying to line this up for a bit. I really appreciate it. I understand uh, you and your son and your family are, have just taken a little trip down to Lorania. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's um, a bank holiday tomorrow in France. And uh, so my children have got the time off school. So I'm taking the time to train my son to do his first uh, flights over 100 kilometers, hopefully. Ah, fantastic. You know, I've been reading your reports in uh, Cross Country about your son, and I, I think that's a great place to start, because uh, if we start with your history, we'll never get to the second question. I had I actually had Jockey Sanderson on the show last week, and I, I, it was the same with him. You guys have been at this a long time, and I will get into some of that. It's funny, it's funny you mention that. Because last summer I was flying with uh, Jockey and uh, we ended up with uh, one particular day with uh, Jockey, myself, my son and his son all thermaling together, which was really nice. Oh, I bet that was special. How old is your son? How old is Tier? He's 17. Okay. And when did he start flying? Well, I mean, he's been around flying all his life, but really started seriously three years ago. Okay. And that was... He was 14. Was was he begging at the? Was he chomping at the bit to get into it? Was that kind of when you allowed him to do it, or is that when he just took an interest to it? Um, yeah, that was more when he took an interest to it because for him, he's well. There, there's there's quite a funny story. He his um, his school where where he he learned to read and write was in the landing field in Grelier, and uh, I used to fly down and land in the landing field and pick him up from school and one day he said said to me um hey dad why don't you do something cool like come on a motorbike because for him paragliding is just normal completely normal you know riding a motorbike is unusual so <laughs> for him 
you know, it's uh, paragliding is is in in the blood so much that it's it's nothing unusual. You know, that's 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 a big difference for most people. And I mean, given your background, and uh, you know, we'll get maybe into the darker side of it here in a little bit. I always like to bring up accidents and why they happen and that kind of thing. And you've written uh, compulsively about uh, you know techniques and tactics and your books. Uh, well, your book, Fifty Ways to Be a Better Pilot, and then now your digital versions coming out are just fantastic. And for those of you listening, if you don't have those, you're an idiot. You need to get them. <laughs> uh, but uh, how have you approached teaching tier? Uh, with with all your history in the sport? Yeah, well, I'm not a professional instructor. I've never taught uh, pilots in a school situation. I've um, been in the British team and been training the British team, so I've always taught elite pilots, but I never taught pilots from day one. So I do ask Tia to uh, do some traditional courses in some paragliding schools as well. But... Um, I know. I feel that uh, with him, it's very much hands-on and um, learning from experience. You know, and and I, I, because I'm so close to him, I get the feeling that I know what he's capable of what, of doing and what he's not capable of doing. So I make sure that the the challenge of the situation suits his ability. You guys must have a pretty special relationship. I, I know that when I was Tears age. If my father had anything to tell me, it was usually the bird and going the other direction. How is that? Um, is that is that changed your guys' relationship, or is that something where he's just got so much respect for you that he does what you says, what you say? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's a little bit of uh, both ways, you know, because uh, he he's obviously knows that I've got an incredible experience and history in flying, but. Uh, he likes to be the upstart as well and try and beat his dad whenever he can. So <laughs> it's an ongoing competition. And it, it sounds like he's getting pretty good. That might actually be uh, close on your horizon. Yeah, well, I mean, I stopped flying competitions about uh, four or five years ago after 25 years of competition because I figured 25 years is enough. It's quite a long time to be a, in the British team and top-level competitor. And, and tell me about competitions then, because I, I'd, I'd like to roll back the clock a little bit uh, long before my time to you know, when you were flying with Pendry and Whittle. Uh, as far as I know, the three of you are kind of the only ones that have taken the podium both in hang gliding and paragliding in those kind of mid-90s, uh, just just killing it. Um, what what was different? What was different about your guys' approach? What what can you recall some of the things that led to that success? Was it just being in that group, or, or was it more complicated than that? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it came from being British at the time, because the British scene was very very competitive, with a lot of top level pilots coming in and almost like top-level sportsmen, uh, whereas I get the feeling to, today that there's, you know, people coming into the flying scene are not really regarded as top-level sportsmen in many countries. And that, that was quite different at that time in Britain. Now in Britain, the British scene, I feel that um, the whole I know, status of the sport has, has gone down. I mean, I'll probably get my head bitten off for saying that, but uh, 
it, it's definitely the case. You know, people don't consider being a professional competition pilot as a as a as a, a a good career path nowadays. You know, rather than you know a bit like someone doing a professional footballer or or a professional engineer or a professional doctor. You know, being a professional competition pilot is not really considered as a as a mainstream thing to do. Whereas back then it, it was more so. Hmm. And it, what do you what do you attribute that to? Um, what's changed in the sport, both for the good and the bad? Um, I attribute that to uh, general politics in the country, really, in Britain. You know, coming from uh, Thatcher's in, influence in politics, where uh, national sport was looked down on compared to uh, business and industry and making money because sport's more difficult to make money in rather than, rather than business. So, you know, we're talking in deeper philosophy here and politics rather than, than flying. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll get, it, we'll get it back on track then. Um, you, you won the world championships in 2007. Was that when you decided to kind of hang up competition flying? Or, or, um, and, and I guess tell me about that experience because that's a, a pretty crowning achievement. Yeah, I was uh, obviously very happy about that, uh, but it it comes on a, a background of um, competition style because my own style is uh, very tactical flying and not uh, particularly into full-on racing and the paragliding competition scene has got more and more into what I call fishbowl racing, so that's small tasks racing around in a couple of hours and uh, often it's the final glide into the goal which is the critical part whereas my flying style was more into very big tasks you know six or eight hour tasks flying very far all day and to me the best task was one with only uh, 10 or 20 percent of the pilots into goal and um, that world championships in 2007 was um, was one with very difficult tasks, and the reason I won was very simply that I was the only pilot to get into goal every day, and so that that's the kind of style, flying style that really suits me. So I, I felt that uh, that fashion of flying has been going out over the last decade or so. Uh, the, you're you're a belligerent pilot. I think you and I would get along just fine. That's that's how I like to fly. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, Bruce, I, I'd love to ask you a question that just occurred to me, uh, made me made me think of a question that maybe has a very easy answer, but I don't know it. Um, day two of the X-Alps, I was walking down off the hill with Michael Vichy, and, uh, who I didn't know very well, and uh, he told me about his engineering background. I know you have a civil engineering background, and it seems to me like there are a lot of engineers in this sport. Well, what is it that attracts you to paragliding, or maybe initially attracts attracted to paragliding and tie that in with, with engineering. What is it about um, an engineering mind that works so well with flying? I know, I mean, I was, I started as a civil engineer and one of the reasons I wanted to do civil engineering was because it's mostly outdoors. You know, you're working on buildings and structures and that's what attracted me to civil engineering in the first place. And I guess it's the same thing that attracts me to flying because it's a, an outdoor sport and really closely related to the elements and so 
that was the common thread going going between the two. I'm working on uh, design of paragliders, so being an engineer is naturally uh, a good uh, thing to be if you're going to be designing paragliders. You know, designing anything as an engineering background is is ideal. But what about more the the flying aspect of things? I mean, it seems to me like maybe an engineer, and I I can't speak from experience because I couldn't engineer anything. I can't even build a box. Uh, so, but I, I I'm curious to why you think that uh, kind of that mathematical mathematical mind works really well when you're in the sky. Well, one thing that comes to mind is uh, people who are dyslexic. People who are dyslexic are often engineers and they often have a good spatial awareness and three-dimensional space uh, is well sorted within their mind. And that's why they're good at engineering. And I think that's also why they're good at uh, flying because you're flying in 3D and, you know, when you're thermaling, you've got this whole mass of gliders all whirling around in three dimensions around your head. And uh, those are the same kind of minds work well with both those problems. Tell me about competitions. You said you flew in comps for was it twenty five years? What, what did you What did you love about them? And then maybe vice versa. What What did you not like about them? Yeah, my first time in the British team was in nineteen eighty six. Was actually the America's Cup. We flew in uh, flew into Calgary and flew in Invermere for the America's Cup in 86, so not so far from your your way. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I've been obsessed by paragliding competitions and also the close link between design and competition, which was always extremely important to me because um, most of the development of the competition, of the, of the gliders came out of flying in competitions. And so competitions and development has always been one of the same really and I think that's what's given me the fascination to carry on flying in competitions for so many years because it's the the development aspect of it which is really you know makes it so much more interesting what what level glider do you fly now just for recreation or with your son yeah I'm flying a cure so that's a high-end sea glider three-liner and um, yeah, I, th- I think that's um, a really lovely, lovely level of glider to fly. It's got a good safety level and excellent performance as well. Um, what, what are you flying at the moment? Uh, What's your well, so to Alaska, I'll take the. Um, it's actually a, it's a Peak Four lightweight version, but it's going to be very similar to the Climber. That they're actually not making that in a certified glider. You know, I'm a Niviac pilot. Um, so I, I used the Peak mm-hmm. 3 on the Rockies Traverse with Will Gadd. He was flying the Carrera, very nice, beautiful wing. Um, and then in the, in the X-Alps, I flew the Ice Peak 7. It wasn't even a light version. I was planning on flying the Peak 3, the, the light version, but I, I wanted a little bit more performance because it looked like the weather was going to be pretty good. Uh, it was awfully windy, so it was quite nice to have that bar performance, but uh, a little bit sketchier, of course. But yeah, And then in yeah. comps, I fly the Ice Peak 8, although I, I think the Ice Peak 9 is out, so I'll probably be flying that. I, I'm not sure I'll even get to fly any comps this year. It's a pretty busy season, but... 
but um yeah that i i i think the peak four is pretty close to the ice peak six and it's so it's a glider that's very close to my heart <laughs> i loved that glider right yeah yeah i know it well is is your company your designs will you be are you working on the competition end of things or are you more mostly more in the abc group yeah up to now we've always been abc group and three liners um I've made a couple of two-liners, but only prototypes, no production gliders. And uh, I'll be shortly making another two-liner. Though it's, you know, it's interesting to see that uh, I'm really looking closely whether we're going to be seeing any hybrid structures between two and three-liners coming up. Because um, I, st- I still think there's a lot of uh, possibility in design to make some interesting variations, not just a simple two-liner or a three-liner. But... Take me through that process. Maybe, obviously, not so much detail, but if, um, you know, when you when you create a new wing, we've had a lot of questions um, in the last few weeks when I announced that I was going to be talking to you. People are really excited about knowing what your process is. How, how, do, you, how do you go about creating a glider? Well, normally, I mean, normally you're not, creating a glider from nothing you're starting from a previous glider so you know you've probably got a glider and which is already existing already on the market and either know what the weak points are yourself or you've um, heard from customers and dealers what the weak points are in the design or perhaps what other brands have made which is better than than that glider so um that gives you a pointer of what, what you need to to work on. And uh, so you take that into consideration and then you have some, perhaps some new ideas. Um, as there's, already, there's always a list of uh, 10 or 15 new ideas which are up your sleeve, which you'd love to work on developing, but you just haven't got the time and the resources to develop the new concepts. So you find a new concept which you think is appealing and you make it, make one and uh, see whether it works and then see how the product, you know, the, the prototype that you've made compares with improving either the weak points in your existing design or comparing with whatever the best market and best glider on the market is at the, at the time. And um, so it's just a, a combination of those things. But the, the test flying process is so important because then you really get to feel in the air what's working and what's not working. And then that gives you the clues of what to, to tweak or develop on in, the, in those ideas or, or what to just drop. So it's very much a, you know, a, a feeling of what you feel when you're flying the prototypes and what you're, you know, you're, 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 you know it's, it's, it's really... You know, so so closely linked to flying, and then I don't know, sleeping on it the next night, and and getting getting the thoughts about uh, about what's happening in the air and how it links in with all the things that you've put in the design. Um, the, your uh, your testing process are are you the test pilot, or have you got uh, quite a group, or how big is your crew there now at BGD Designs? Yeah, in development we are three working. Um, myself and Anthony are the the main test pilots. I have um, Mattis is another engineer working with me as well. 
all together, though, the BGD, we now have uh, 15 people working for the company. So we've grown up quite large in only three years since we started. Um, we have two offices, one in France, in Gordon, where I work. So we're five people in that office. And then we have another office in Austria where there are three people working. And the remaining people are uh, working from home, just spread out all around Europe and Asia as well. Wow. And they're, they're being manufactured in Asia? Yeah, we're making our gloves in Sri Lanka. So, um, in fact, I'm off, there, off to Sri Lanka on Sunday to visit the production. I normally go there about four times a year. Fantastic. It, it, when you when you look back at the you know f from the mid '80s when you're flying all the way through until now, have you had times where your your passion for the sport has has waned? Because it seems like you're incredibly passionate about it. And but if so, and if so, um, why? Um, yeah, it's a, a difficult question. I would say that. Well, I mean, I've been extremely passionate about competition flying the whole time since I stopped flying competition my emphasis has changed because I was always on to absolutely top competition gliders always pushing the absolute limit of performance competition and, and safety in the gliders and over the last six years since I stopped flying top level competition I've been more focusing on intermediate gliders um, that's combined with uh, the, the new company as well, of course, because it's uh, very difficult to make any money at all out of competition gliders nowadays because the whole competition scene has changed so much with uh, certification and uh, stopping development in competition, which has been uh, a major shock for me, I would say. <laughs> it's always been... As I said, it's always been an intrinsic part of competition to, to develop gliders in the competitions. So the, the switch to certified gliders has, uh, has been yeah, a massive change for me and you know, for the whole competition scene. So yeah, you were asking about uh, my enthusiasm for flying. No, I'd say I've stayed extremely enthusiastic the whole time, actually. Um, yeah, I still, still dream of flying all the time and talk about it 24 hours a day, much to my wife's frustration. <laughs> Paradribble. We, we kill our significant <laughs> others with that, don't we? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, have there been any accidents along, along the way? Yeah, I had, um, I've actually had, in... Probably the first accident I had was in 93 at the World Hang Gliding Championships in Owens Valley when I tumbled. I tumbled the hang glider you know, and fell down on the top of White Mountain and landed in the snow and walked out from there the next overnight and the next day. So that was uh, a big accident, but I wasn't injured because I landed in snow and it was soft. Goodness gracious, and, uh, <laughs> that's a heck of a story, <laughs> dude. <laughs> that was, uh, well, the story is actually even worse than that because it was during the World Championships and I was obviously part of the British team and I was, uh, I crashed up at, you know, right up near the peak of White Mountain. Um, 
they had no helicopter rescue at that time. I'm not sure why. And uh, they, I saw a, the rescue team fly by on the Cessna, but they couldn't really help too much. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I packed up my rescue chute and uh, slept in it overnight. And the next morning I walked down, arrived at the road at the bottom at uh, 11 in the morning. They picked me up drove me directly to takeoff where the British team had rigged another hang glider for me and uh, took off an hour later for the next task. <laughs> oh, my God, I love it. <laughs> the, the Owens are, are – well, that, that leads to a, an obvious question. What's your favorite place to fly? You know, we just had U.S. Nationals out at the Owens uh, this fall, and uh, we, I did a pretty neat uh, bivy trip through the Sierras a few years back uh, with Nick Grease and a bunch of friends of yours. Um that's a special but very stark, very on place. Um, is is that rank up there with one of your favorites, or uh, what are your favorites? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, Owens is just extraordinary, you know, because people always talk about flying in big, strong sites like they're completely different for anywhere else. And the only place I really know that absolutely lives up to its reputation is Owens Valley because it's just completely extreme. You know, cloud base is higher, temperature differences are bigger and the winds are stronger and the thermals are stronger and everything is just double everywhere else. So it's, it's really an amazing place for me. But I think my favorite competition site is uh, San Andreas Alpes in France because um, the reason I like it there so much is that you can just do a task in every single direction and then come back from any direction. Whereas in most flying sites, you're limited to a route. You know, you either follow the ridge up or down. And, you know, it's, it's, it's normally limited to a particular direction on nearly every competition site. But San Andreas Alp in France is really open to flying in every single direction and doing tasks in every direction, which really makes it unique. So your your first accident was tumbling your hang glider and landing on top of White Mountain. Can I, <laughs> are, there, are there others? Because that is, that is a great story. <laughs> well, the funny thing is that after that, um, at, at that time I was actually competing professional hang gliding and paragliding at the same time. And uh, after that accident, I stopped the hang gliding competitions and just switched to paragliding because I felt it was safer, which at the time was uh, not something that, was, that could be said. Well, even now, people, people don't really like to say things like that. But uh, at that time, hang gliding was quite a lot more dangerous because there was a lot of tumbling going on. Hang gliders, you know, just tumbling and... Uh, destroying themselves in the air. I think in the British team, that trip, we were six in the team, uh, two tumbled and crashed to the ground, and one tumbled and kept on flying. So out of the team of six, uh, three tumbled. So that was uh, pretty serious. Uh, after that, they increased the safety margins on pitch stability on hang gliders in the certification, and the gliders got more safe. But uh, Initially, that was one of one of the reasons that I went full time on paragliding was, yeah, you know, just just because you can't tumble on a paraglider, <laughs> they right, collapse instead. Right. Yeah, sure. Uh, unless you tumble with a lot of energy, and then they'll just tumble forever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, 
I, I did have a, another accident, which uh, was in 2009. I hit a lamppost on landing approach. I was doing a spot landing, and uh, you had to get very low over the edge of the field, and there were some lampposts along the edge of the field. And I hit a lamppost and uh, fell into the road and uh, fractured a vertebrae. So I think that's, that's actually the worst accident I've had in, in flying. So I was out for a few weeks with a fractured vertebrae, but nothing too serious, luckily. Anything to offer the, the listeners from your kind of vast experience? Certainly you've seen lots of accidents. Um, I asked Will Gadd this, and his answer was, was brilliant, I thought. But, you know, what, what's the most common reason that people do get into bad situations? Uh, I think it's, it's people not appreciating their own level and what they're capable of doing and um, pushing, I mean, everybody needs to push, push the limit sometimes, but to push beyond your limit is, is what, um, what gives, causes the accident in the end. So, um, you know, if, if you're in doubt, just uh, take the easy option and do the safe thing and don't, don't push the limit so far that you might have an accident. Because um, I think people people get overconfident or cocky and uh, push the limit probably on conditions or on wind speed or on the level of their glider. And um, I, I think people have a good understanding of what their own level is. And if in doubt, just err on the safe side rather than on the on the risky side. And if you do that, then it just switches the odds into your favor and uh, makes a massive difference. I think the thing that causes accidents, well, especially with, with regard to safety on gliders, is when the glider does something which surprises you, when you don't appreciate what your limit is and something happens which takes you by surprise. And, and uh, that's probably what causes the most, most accidents, that people don't appreciate appreciate what their limit is or make an error in the assessment of, of their own judgment or the combination of the pilot and the, and the glider and the conditions. How much do you fly these days, Bruce? Like, what, what kind of hours? You probably don't log your flights anymore, but what kind of hours do you think you're flying these days? I think my hours is down a lot. I mean, I always used to fly 300 hours a year for many, many years, but, it's, but nowadays I'm flying... Uh, once or twice a week, but because I don't do long uh, XE flights, the hours is probably down a lot. I mean, I used to fly, sometimes I fly 40 hours in a week uh, in a big competition, and you only do that five hours a year, and you've got 200, 200 hours, you know. So I'm, I'm only probably flying in a, a couple of hours a week, so, you know, 100, 150 hours a year, I would say, nowadays compared to 300 hours a year before. And do you notice the do you know the, notice the difference in your kind of intuition because of the cutback? Um, I wouldn't say that the cutback in hours changes my time in the air. But one thing which uh, people don't talk about is um, is the effect of age on your flying ability and your flying skill. I'm now 56 and I Definitely feel 
that I'm not able to do the same things that I could do uh, 10 or 15 years ago. So I definitely feel I have to increase my safety margins because of my age. When you say you can't do the things that you used to be able to do, are you talking about reaction time or more like seeing birds or hearing things? Or are you talking just general aging or um, something else? I mean, I mean, for instance, if, if you had to land in an area with uh, rocks, you know, like 15 years ago, I would just pile in there and jump from rock to rock and get away with it, you know. Uh, but I don't. But now, if I went into the same rocks, I would hurt myself more, for sure. So I'm talking about being a bit less agile, uh, more fragile, uh, and um, probably a bit slower in reaction time as well to be able to cope with uh, things when, you know, to be able to get away with things when things don't go the way you want them to. Mm. Yeah, I think I think everybody can probably uh, relate to that as we as we get a little bit older. No, <laughs> I certainly do. Absolutely. Um, li- li- so I so I just increased my safety margins uh, because sure, of my age. Sure. Um, let's transition here a little bit to progression. Your your book, uh, Fifty Ways to to Become a Better Pilot, um, fantastic. And obviously, we can't go through all of those now and again i encourage our listeners to grab that uh, it's just an amazing amount of knowledge there um but give me three what are what are what are three things that really top that list list of how to Mm -hmm. progress in Mm. in flying i think well one rule which which i really love is 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 if it's not working doing what you're doing do something else uh, this is a very simple idea because quite often people try to do something, it doesn't work, and then they just persistently keep hammering at that thing, whatever it is, even if it doesn't work. And, and you know, they just get defeated in the end because it still doesn't work. <laughs> Whereas just the very simple idea is if it doesn't work, do what you're doing, just do something else, is, is something which works so well all the time, in, in especially in flying. Uh, I could give you a couple of examples like, you know, if you go, if you glide in and go to one side of the ridge and it doesn't work, you know, just try the other side, even if it goes against what you were expecting, you know, because maybe there were just, maybe there's something going on that, that you're not understanding. So, and another example could be perhaps you're trying to land in a landing field and you've got a headwind and you can't get there. And instead of just hammering on, trying to get to the same place, just switch your mentality and do something else. You know, just go with the wind, go somewhere else. And don't just keep hammering on with the same idea. So it's the idea of being flexible in your mind and not always thinking that you know, your perception of something is absolutely right, you know, just be able to think that you're wrong and that something completely the opposite can be, can be a better solution. So it's just to, to keep your mind open enough to be able to, to change to doing something different. I think that's, that's, that's really a great mm. lesson. Okay, number two. <laughs> number two. <laughs> you're not getting off that easy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's number one, number two. Let's. 
talk about uh, perhaps flying in uh, competitions and flying with uh, other pilots. I think that uh, observation is uh, probably the most important uh, pilot skill because um, observation is, you know, enables you to make the right decisions, to go to the right places. And uh, so by observation, I mean especially looking at what uh, other pilots are doing in the air because the, the absolutely sure way of knowing what's going on and what works and what doesn't work is to look at what the other pilots are doing. So f first observation is observation of other pilots. Second observation is uh, natural features, you know, birds or wind or sun and uh, maybe the effect of the wind on the trees, things, things like that. Uh, that's a secondary observation. Um, I sometimes uh, talk about uh, how important it is to know exactly what all the other pilots are doing on the hill when you're flying. Very often pilots fly and they don't look around them at what all the other pilots are doing and they're just missing the biggest clue to, to what they should be doing. When I fly, I would say that I know, well, quite often I get just a, a sore neck, just a chafed neck from looking around the whole time at all the other pilots around you, especially if you're in a competition where there's, you know, maybe a hundred other pilots around you. But even when you're just ridge soaring on the, on the hill, you've got to be looking at everybody. You see them all doing the same thing. And then maybe one pilot does something strange flies in an area where no one else is going. So if he does that, you absolutely need to know what happens to that guy. Does he do well? Does he do better than you? Does he do worse than you? Does he go up? Does he go down? You know, how does it go on? And when you're flying on a ridge for a couple of hours, you know, there's probably going to be 20 different people that try different things. And you need to be aware of all those 20 things. Those 20 people did, which ones worked, which ones didn't work. And then you know, well, if it didn't work, I better not do that. Or if it did work, well, why not give it a go? And um, so that's why observation is just incredibly important in flying. So that's my, that's my number two. <laughs> <laughs> I have to think about number, number three now. How about I, I can ask you, um, I, I can come back to this if this doesn't align up, but um, maybe as a number three, but it is uh, how... What's the hardest thing to learn to do well in paragliding and, and kind of the most critical? Um, I would sort of turn that on its head. That one of the first thing you need to do in flying is to be able to fly completely automatically. <laughs> so, because when, first of all, you have to, to get the basic flying completely off to a tee, you know, you have to be able to fly, take off, land, land anywhere, cope with collapses, spins, stalls, using your speed system, all the basic flying things you need to be able to completely master before you can start getting onto the interesting stuff, you know, and the interesting stuff is, you know, the decisions about where you're going to fly, decisions about how you can fly in competitions and beat people, take different routes. 
And to me, that's the most interesting part. So it, it sort of turns your question the other way around, that the first thing you need to do is just completely master the sport of, uh, of, of you know, the physical part of flying so that you can get onto the more mental part, which is optimizing your flying or, I mean, I guess the, the same goes in, in every sport, you know, be it motor racing or playing football, whatever, people have to completely be able to master driving their car very fast and not have to worry about that and think more about the strategy of the game rather than just the physical the physical activity which goes on about uh, about flying when i used to fly hang gliders and paragliders i would very often if i thought back about a flight i wouldn't remember whether i was flying a hang glider or a paraglider because the actual flying part is just automatic it just happens so when, when I fly, I'm looking at mountains, clouds, winds, looking for thermals, making decisions. And what tool I'm using to fly is really irrelevant. An, interest, you know, an interesting observation, which I think is really important, important mm. in flying. Okay, so before I cut into you there and, and offered that, that question, do you have a number? Would that, would that be a good number three or do you have a better number three? Yeah, no, I think I think that's a good number three. Yeah, to to be able to master the the, the physical capability, the physical activity of flying before you can elevate yourself to uh, the strategic the strategic level. I, I like thinking about that in terms of kind of like getting into a zone or kind of in a mental state uh, where you're just where you're kind of on autopilot. Um, when you went into uh, your win in 2007. Um, can you take me through some of the kind of the mental or maybe physical preparations you did uh, before then? Was that more? Um, obviously, you're really shooting to win all the time. But what what were the kind of the what were the pieces of the puzzle that came together there for you? Well, uh, yeah, I already spoke about the kind of conditions that were present in Australia with very difficult technical tasks. Um, tasks where only a small number of the field would get into goal every day. And those are exactly the time of tasks which uh, suit me. I said one, one thing that was um, very interesting that happened was that during that competition, the, the guy who was winning the competition was changing the first task, the second task that the guy from who was in the previous league would bomb out. And then when we got to the... Uh, last day of the competition and I was in the lead I remember a lot of people saying well what are you, what are you going to do now in your you know are you, you going to mark the guy who's in second position and make sure you arrive very close to him so that he can't beat you or what you what you're going to do and um, my philosophy at that stage was um, going back a bit to what I was talking about earlier I think it's the opposite to what I said before. Before I said, if it doesn't work doing what you're doing, then do something else. And I did the opposite. I said, if it does work doing what you're doing, continue to do it. So I was winning the world championships. And what did I do on the last day? I didn't change anything. I just carried on flying in exactly the same way I've been flying before. So I didn't fly conservative. I didn't mark the guy in second position. I didn't change my flying style at all. And uh, so that that flip side of the coin really worked for me during the, during that World Championships, and uh, yeah, I, I carried on 
flying on on my own and taking my own risks, and uh, and it worked. But it was it was very difficult the last task of that World Championships because I ended up like a uh, hundred feet from the ground on my own, far out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> but uh, and I got up and made it in. <laughs> um. Bruce, one of the questions that I've gotten a few times are from people who are getting into competitions and, and finding them frustrating because they, you know, they can stay with the gaggle for, uh, you know, for a bit of the comp and then inevitably they fall off. Um, and so that I think the framing of this question was, you know, how do you be, how do you go from becoming an also ran, uh, to somebody charging out in front? And I think that, that, that also applies to not just comp flying, but, you know, like you're talking about, uh, taking tier beyond his first, you know, hundred K flights. Um, how do you step that up? Is that, is that kind of an aha moment or is that just as simple as ours? Yeah, I think flying a lot of competitions is important. You know, I think you need to do at least two years, for example, and probably one year almost full-time competition before you even stand a chance at uh, being at the top level. So that's a lot of flying hours and a lot of commitment. So that's huge. But I I think that uh, staying with the gaggle in top level competitions is is quite easy but what's difficult is to win you know what's difficult is to do something a bit different that puts you out in front and and enables you to beat the others and one thing that i used to uh, quite often think during competition was that what you need to do is follow the main gaggle through the whole task and just Imagine that you only need to make one decision in the whole competition, which is different from the others, which makes you win. So you have to try to assess all the decisions that are going on by the lead gaggle the whole time and find the one decision which isn't right. And then you make the right one and then you win. So, but it's, it's a very hard thing to do because you're spending 90% of your time just following along with the lead gaggle. And just one decision has to be different from all the others. And just to try to have that in mind each flying day, just to have, just to try to spot one decision that you can improve on the lead gaggle and try to make that the decision that makes a difference. So I think people often, they're often thinking too much, you know, every decision, at every stage of the day, every stage of the flight, they're trying to make their own unique decisions all the time. But uh, I think you only need to make your own unique decision you know, once or twice during during the whole day, and then then you make that unique decision really count, and then you've got a good chance of uh, of doing really well in the competition. Fantastic, um, Bruce. I want to be uh, mindful of your time. I, I promised you we wouldn't go over an hour too much here, so I, I thought uh, you gave me that incredible answer for the uh, to in in the Owens where you tumbled and spent the night and walked out and. <laughs> flew the next day on a on a borrowed glider. <laughs> yes. I imagine that probably wasn't your worst flight because those kind of those kind of adventures are always fantastic, especially when we survive to tell the tale. But what is your best flight? Do you when you look back at your career, do you have one that stands out in particular? Yeah. Well it's it's funny the best flight is not the 
flight, which was the longest, of course. One, uh, I think it's probably in uh, La Reunion Island. We just, um, I, I flew this competition in Reunion, and the, the prize at the end was um, myself and Richard Gallant and Uri Weissmeyer. We were the top three. We got helicoptered out and dropped in this remote takeoff in Reunion Island. And we had this helicopter follow us through the middle of the island because most of Reunion is unlandable and has no road access and very difficult place to fly. And we just got this helicopter following us, taking video and uh, stills the whole way through. And we were just given the liberty to fly wherever we want and get a pickup from wherever we want. And uh, I remember we took off at six in the morning because it's a, a very unusual place like that that you can launch so early. And um, yeah, flying in incredible scenery through extremely inhospitable places and then just to get out of it all in the end with a nice helicopter ride out of there was probably the most memorable flight I've ever had. I can, I can relate to that in, in some sense because I, had, I sailed to Reunion in, in 2010 and had a kind of a similarly special, special day. I, it was a very, uh, very new pilot at the time. Uh, so I just, I took off from that standard launch where you guys fly your comps from and I landed down in front of that, I, the, the famous left, uh, uh, it's, I should remember it. It's a very famous wave, and it's like the left in French. Uh, but it's uh, you know, so I landed and then went out and had one of the best surfs of my life. That is a magical island, very uh, very land of the lost type place, isn't it? That must have been incredible. Did you fly in the center of the island? In the because when I first went there to do competitions, I think it was '93. We used to do competitions in the middle of the island. Now all competitions have been stopped in the middle of the island because there's no, well, it's a very radical place to take off. It's a vertical cliff, 2,000 meters high, and there's no landing fields and no roads and very strong conditions. That sounds perfect. And uh, all, <laughs> all competitions have, have stopped in that area. But I, I remember we used to be picked up at four in the morning by the bus, taken up, up the mountain to launch at uh, half past seven up in the, the Cirques, really high up in the wow. mountains. And that was really No, impressive. this was not, definitely not that launch. This was kind of Tahiti-esque, uh, very, uh, you know, over on the leeward side of the island. And you just drove up from, uh, I think it was Agosh was that break. I was trying to remember. And, and uh, you just drive up and there's, yeah. there's, there's you know, ha- you know there's houses and people it's living there. Uh, exactly. Yeah, exactly. exactly. But I never Colimacy. got back into the yeah, Cirques. Ex- where they do all the tan and flies. Yeah, exactly. And I, I never got back into the Cirques except by foot. And it is spectacular back there. It seems like you could basically jump off everything it is so steep <laughs> yeah no it's a fantastic place to fly as well but the uh, you have to launch super early in the morning and the cloud base drops down very very fast it starts two and a half thousand meters and drops down to a thousand meters by lunch wow it goes the opposite that that must be very interesting yeah fantastic yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Bruce, before we sign off, that's a great place to end. Uh, thank you again so much for your time. I'm really honored to sit and, and talk with you, even though we're on opposite sides of the planet. Um, what can we expect, just before we sign off, what can we expect uh, from, from your company here in the next couple of years? And uh, what, what are you kind of excited about? Yeah, well, I'm working on a competition glider again because um, – I haven't done a competition glider with uh, BGD yet, so that would be a yeah, two-liner competition glider. That's 
quite quite exciting. And uh, well, one thing you haven't we haven't talked at all about is uh, SIV uh, safety and uh, glider stability and <laughs> certification and all yeah. those things. I think we're going to have to do another hour session. Yeah, we'll time. we'll do a follow up on that for sure. I I definitely hit the uh, SIV on the head with with Jockey last week. That was that was really great getting his perspective. I started you know I did a acro course actually with them, not really SIV a few years back and that was that was pretty exciting but yeah mm-hmm. absolutely we'll we'll have to uh with you i think we could do three rounds we could do we could go on and on and on I, absolutely i just know that it's getting late in your part of the world and and you've got some flying to do with tear yeah 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 <laughs> cool exactly yeah time, time for bed. bed well bruce thank you very much i really appreciate it it's been fantastic speaking with you and uh, i hope i get to actually fly with you and meet you one of these days Okay, it's a pleasure to speak to you too, Gavin. Thanks. Appreciate it. Cheers. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. What a treat to be able to talk to Bruce. I've never actually met him. Uh, I hope to get to fly with him someday. That was pretty special. Hope you learned a lot. Uh, like I said at the top of the show, I am leaving for Alaska here in just a few hours. Uh, Dave Turner and I are going to try to send it across the Alaskan range from west to east on the north side of the range. Uh, don't believe anybody's ever been out there. Uh, there's a lot of glaciers and a lot of bears and a lot of rivers and a lot of really pretty burly terrain. I'm, I'm, uh, I wouldn't lie to say, wouldn't be lying to say I'm pretty nervous about this one, but I think we're going to have a great adventure. Thank you all for following along. We're going to both have uh, our map share pages up on Facebook and blogs and all that kind of thing, so you should be able to track our progress. Uh, thanks to Stuart Midwinter for providing uh, weather, and thank you to all of you for your generous donations. They just keep coming in. I really appreciate it. It makes this all just super fun and viable, and I will continue to do so, although I apologize. I won't be doing any of these for the next bit of time. We don't know how long it's going to take us, probably four, six, eight weeks, something like that, uh, but as soon as I get back, we'll get somebody else on the horn and get more shows out to you. Thanks for listening. Cheers.